On the Brevity Code podcast, we'll explore a wide range of topics from the very people that give form and color to our world. We'll hear from artists, brand builders, industry leaders, pro athletes, fitness and endurance coaches, philanthropists, entrepreneurs, and many others. Through their actions, they enrich us with their vision, creativity, and bravery. Our guests have all been successful by flying in the face of conventional wisdom. We'll learn from them the ways in which we can apply that very knowledge to our own path and toward our own self-fulfillment. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Brevity Code podcast with Ryan Hauser. Today, my guest is Christian Schaff. Uh, So Christian is equal parts rock star, adventure seeker, visionary marketer, and clearly an entrepreneur who seamlessly weaves whatever fun he seems to be having into a paying gig. We're going to figure that out today. Uh, So we're also going to hear about some of his crazy adventures and learn about his current business, Uncharted Supply Co., and how, frankly, the newest offering might just save your life. So welcome to the show, Christian. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. And you have a special honor today. You are my first remote patch guest. So unfortunately, I'm not going to have the awesome uh, bro shot in studio. We're in this beautiful, rad recording studio here, which fittingly enough, you are a musician. And so you're kind of missing that. And I'm, I'm bummed for you. Uh- I'll dig up some. Uh, I'll dig up some old photos of you crushing me on the bike somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So you're uh, you're getting uh, patched in today from Utah. Is there any snow on the ground? Yeah, we had snow last week. We got about a foot. It's all melted. So um, oddly enough, the resort opens tomorrow. Park City Mountain. I'm in Park City. Um, I'm I'm excited for it. I've got a new snowmobile sitting here. My skis are waxed. I'm a winter guy. So. Every morning I wake up and uh, wait for that first big dump, but not not yet. It's still just kind of brown out here. Oh, man. Yes, winter is coming indeed. Yep. Um, so I'd, I'd like to, uh, we've got a lot of really cool subject matter to get to today. And I, th- I think a good starting point would be to talk about the your first sort of uh, hobby, which becomes a passion, which is music. And And I was actually doing a bit of, of uh, research and and your in your band and I, I noticed you've got like three albums. I mean, you're you're not just some you know guy who you know is just a a cover band junkie and turned rock star. Like you you had seemed like you had a record deal, correct? Or I, I was a cover band junkie. I, I mean, it, it was funny. <laughs> I, I grew up in a musical family. I mean, um, if you want to go way back, second grade, my mom found a picture of my dad playing accordion when he was in second grade. And obviously the only logical solution to that is to find that accordion and force me to take accordion lessons. So we're going way back in time. I mean, you know, everybody in my family plays piano and this and that. And I went from accordion to saxophone in high school, which I was pretty, pretty good at, to um, trying to figure out how to do it cooler. And uh, Exactly. Those, you, you've you got know, to get off those on a much cooler instruments. Right, right. So what happened was... Um, I was a sophomore in high school. I broke my ankle uh, at a football game and um, I bought a guitar and I bought like a Beatles easy chord book and just taught myself how to, how to play D G A E minor. And that's, you know, a majority of the Beatles early catalog. And from there I just started playing with friends and um, I kind of always said, well, as long as it keeps growing, um, I'll keep playing. And it just, it just kind of kept growing. Um, I don't want any, I don't want anybody to think I'm thinking we were the biggest thing in rock ever, but you know, we played for eight years and we played in 25 countries. 
Um, I played 150 shows in Iraq. We were named Armed Forces Entertainers of the Year, and we even were fortunate enough to work with, uh, you know, like Phil Solom, who is the, the the lead singer of the Rembrandts, who wrote the Friends theme, I'll Be There for You. And, you know, we worked with uh, Tommy Barbarella and Michael Bland, who were in the new power generation with Prince. I mean, we got in deep really quick, and um, it was it was always fake until you make it for me and, and you know, trying just to hang on, because those guys were... Those guys were freaks of musicians. So rad, man. And so that, that, so let's talk about that for a second. So you, you're, you're doing the band thing and you're touring around. And I, I think this is pretty interesting as, as to your career trajectory, uh, playing overseas for troops and what sort of transpires there. So take me through some of that and, and, and maybe we can kind of get into some of the hijinks that happened there, some scary moments, and and where eventually that leads into other aspects of your career. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, out of I went to school in Wisconsin. I graduated. I started working at a web design firm, and then the music was part-time. And within a year, I moved to Minneapolis and, and did it full-time. Um, I would say the music industry was hard for me. I come from a family of farmers where you get up early and you work all day, and it's kind of an honest living. And... Um, not not to say the entire music industry is, is shady by any sense, but it's a lot of late nights. It's a lot of nights at clubs. It's, it's in a lot of smoky rooms. And, um, you know, the thing that was always tough for me is I always tell people, hey, if you're, if you're a sprinter and you're the fastest sprinter, you're going to win from the race and get paid. But as a musician, it's very arbitrary, depending on who likes you or who knows you. And if you're good and, and the right break at the right time. And, you know, after several years of growing and jumping through hoops, it it gets difficult, right? It, it's hard to kind of just keep hoping somebody's going to call you and, and like what you're doing. So um, we tended to take matters into our own hands. We, um, we pulled in some sponsorships early. We found some brands that were interested in trying to talk to college kids, and we were playing college shows. So we would partner with them, and they would cover our costs and help make money there. And, um, you know, towards the end of the seven or eight years that I toured, um, we were at South by Southwest playing showcases down there, and some guys came up from the Pentagon and said, hey, you guys ever thought about going overseas and playing for the troops? And uh, we all just looked at each other and said, hey, sign me up. So, um, so let's, that turned into years. Hold on, let's talk about that encounter. So some dudes from the Pentagon rolled up to South by Southwest, and oh. you guys, like, <laughs> I, I picture these sort of men in black guys with with dark shades and totally standing out like a sore thumb. Were they there as fans or, or how, how does that interaction come about? And, and yeah. So people are most familiar with the USO and the USO is a civilian organization that raises money from private citizens and then sends over the, the Toby Keiths of the world. Right. But the Pentagon has a group called armed forces entertainment, and that's a government run tax funded um, kind of division that provides entertainment for troops serving abroad. Um, and so these guys were part of that organization. You know, they had, they had civilian clothes on. They weren't, you know, they weren't in their fatigues or anything. But I can tell you, I've been to Iraq 38 times now. I can pick out any military member in a mall any day of the week. Um, <laughs> there's some dead giveaways. It's usually, it's usually some kind of tactical pants. Um, their shoes are usually shoes you can run in. They've usually got, you know, a short haircut. Um, they walk a little straighter. Um, you know, it's just, it's just that whole mindset. I think it's ingrained in them. So, you know, these guys didn't look like the normal um, hipster down at South by Southwest that was, you know, chugging beers and kind of hanging out. These guys were, um, they were, they stood out a little bit, but uh, they came up and said, Hey, we'd like to show. And, um, you know, we're looking for bands to send overseas. And we think you guys would be great. And 
if I remember correctly, I thought that you know, they have weird ways of kind of identifying the theaters around the world. And they said Southeast Asia. And I thought, I don't know. When I hear Asia, I think, you know, China or, or something like that. I was like, cool. And um, he said, yeah, we're in. Let's do it. And I think it was a month later, we got the itinerary and it was like Kuwait, uh, Iraq, Abu Dhabi, Dubai. <laughs> So framework for years. So two things here. Framework that those years. And second, we haven't identified the name of your band. And so I know you're like, you know, a humble, mellow dude, but probably worth throwing out there in case someone wanted to check it out. Sure, sure. So our band was called Catch Penny. Um, we played for about eight years, as you mentioned earlier. We had three albums on iTunes. I, you know, I think they're great albums. I think in different times, different scenarios, some of those songs could have been big hits you heard on the radio. Uh, our journey was pretty unique. We were always trying to find ways to, to tie the business in. And, you know, towards the end of our, our touring days, we had some record deals offered to us. But at that point, we were savvy enough to realize that they were, frankly, slavery contracts. And um, we just chose not to go that route. We thought, you know, we're selling a lot of CDs. We're touring a lot. Um, we control everything. And while it's super, super attractive to, you know, sign that, record deal and get a bus and fly around. I just, at this point, I'd heard so many horror stories. We, we never went down that path. So on a, on a nationwide scale, you know, we weren't on the radio all the time. People didn't hear about us that way, but in the Midwest, it's not hard to find somebody that, that knew about Catch Penny or been to a show of ours. Yeah. So let's set this up a bit. So you're, you're how old when you, when you uh, get this opportunity to go uh, overseas? Oh gosh. Um, 25 ish. I suppose. Okay. I think, I think I've been going over for about 10 years now. So I would have to actually look back It all. It all blurs together. All right. But, but I mean, obviously, you know, not too far out of college and obviously a very young spry dude. Uh, yeah. yeah and, and, you know, like my, my brother's in the band and he's, um, he's five years younger than me. So yeah, a lot of times wow. I had the big brother responsibility. I wasn't just making decisions for myself, but I was making decisions for Zach and, you know, Zach, um, Zach became a, an exceptional kicker, a football kicker. And, you know, he was playing for the University of Minnesota at the time and, and like, quit the football team to, to hop in with the band. So it wasn't just decisions I was making for my life, but, you know, I had, I had my brother along and, um, and you know, our other, our other guys in the group. Right. So describe that first moment you get off the plane and you're where in Kuwait? Is that the first destination? Yeah, yeah. So that's actually a great... Um, I vividly remember this. You know, you fly from, um, we were in Minneapolis at the time, so it was, it was winter, um, right. snow-covered. You fly into Amsterdam. Amsterdam, if you've ever been there, the Schiphol Airport, it's like technicolor, bright, yes. bright green, right? Like everything just feels kind of um, like oversaturated there. So, you know, you're in Schiphol for eight hours, and then you get on the flight, and then you fly into Kuwait. And I remember flying into Kuwait, and that first blast of air hitting us as we walked off the plane. It was like your stomach drops a little. It's just, it's like, wow, this is kind of what I've seen on movies. You know, suddenly everybody's wearing the, the long gowns, the burkas, and, and um, you're definitely the outlier there. And we got off the plane. We kind of funneled through customs. We got out. The military guys were waiting for us. Um, we get in some up-armored SUVs. So back then when we first started, the war was still going on, Operation Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom. And so Kuwait was still close to the Iraq war, you know, right on the border. So we'd have one truck in front of us with guys, guns. 
we'd be in the middle and then a truck behind us and they would race us down the highway into the military base um, where we would set up. And, you know, that felt super foreign. But I can tell you, after playing a couple days in Kuwait and then getting out of C-17 and going into Iraq, coming back to Kuwait felt like you were home. Like Kuwait these days to me feels like just a different place in the United States. And that's how gnarly Iraq felt at the time. Like it, I can't even explain how different that environment is for the normal person. So give us a sense of that. So again, cause you're, you know, you're looking at it from a, you're, you're, you're an entertainer, you're in a foreign land and obviously, <laughs> you know, you're not carrying a gun. You're not, you don't have any military mm-hmm. training. It's gotta be a bit fish out of water and you're ultimately trusting, you know, those around you. And obviously that's the best in the world. However, still got to feel a little bit vulnerable. There were a lot of, you know, people are always like, hey, is it scary? And I, you know, I've been there so many times. What I can tell people is generally no now, but there were definitely moments where I thought I was going to die. Um, but, but that first trip over, I mean, here's one way to set it up. In Kuwait, people are walking around in kind of the gray army t-shirts and shorts. There's gyms on the base. There's a pool. Um, and it, it, it feels almost like a college campus in a desert where everybody's wearing the same clothes. When you get on the plane to Iraq, everybody's wearing flak jackets, helmets, everybody's got a gun, and nobody's smiling anymore. You know, it's like, the, you can yeah. like cut the tension. Yeah, it's just, it's heavy. Yeah. You get to these bases, and like, there's some bases where you get off, and they're like, heads down, run to that building. You get to that building, they're like, okay, we've had mortar attacks every day, so we're going to take you through the mortar taxi. And you're sitting there going, Holy crap. Dude, like, I'm gonna, now these, these venues you're playing, are these open air? Are these inside some kind of facility? Like, are you thinking like, dude, I'm going to take some sniper fire while I'm on stage here. What's that like? Uh, we, we did take sniper fire one time. What? Uh, not while we were playing, <laughs> but while we were setting up. Um, you know, it always depended. We would, it's really interesting and we can get into this, but um, when we first went over, they generally took, took bands to big bases. And the reason, you know, I, I what, what got us going back so many times, and now we send a lot of other entertainment over, is we kind of found a way to provide entertainment to people that weren't getting it before. So, so to make a long story short, uh, Colonel Scott Rainey, who was the guy that was in charge of the programs when we were over there, I was having lunch with him one day, and I said, what are your pain points? Like, what are, you know, you do this all the time. Like, what's the hardest part of your job? And he said, you know, we have 350 bases in Iraq that I'm responsible for getting entertainment to. And right now, I can only get bands out to about 30 or 35 bases. I said, well, why is that? He said, well, you know, we rent these PA systems from this company in Kuwait. There's these big, huge speakers. We've got five or six guys. It's so much gear. Um, Because we can't convoy, meaning drive, because it's too dangerous, we have to fly everywhere. And that limits us to taking C-130s or C-17s, which means we can only go to the bases that have landing strips. So I said, you're telling me if you could get bands out to these other bases, he's like, there's like 300 bases I can't get to. So um, my brother and I went home and worked with our sound engineer, and we developed a PA system that would basically fit into a Black Hawk helicopter, which opened up going to all these other bases. So when you ask about the venues we played at, when we first started, it was, it was like college campuses. They would have a stage, they had a, a green room, so to speak. You know, it was, it was not dissimilar to playing in the States. By the time we started going to these other bases, I mean, we, I remember playing a tent one day where my head was hitting the top of the tent and there was 30 or 40 troops, everybody on the base packed into this tent and we had to play quiet because we were on the Iranian border and they thought, you know, if it's too loud, they'll just lob some, lob some IEDs at us or, or whatever. 
the they mortar rounds. They so just triangulate the noise and then just that. start shelling. I'd, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we played on top of uh, truck trailers. We showed up at bases where they built the stage because we were the first ones to ever show up there. I mean, the thing we had to be above all else was completely flexible. We always said, get comfortable being uncomfortable and just make it work. And I'd say that's the thing I'm most proud of with our group is maybe it's our farm upbringing or whatever, but we would just show up and go, okay, what's, you know, what's the deal? And they're like, well, we've got a generator and we've got this pad of dirt. We put some two by four or some plywood down on it, but cool. Let's go. You know, so it was gnarly, man. It was, it's one of those experiences that I, I honestly wish every American could experience because I think they'd have a very different perspective on our military in general, on the war, you know, in Iraq, uh, with ISIS. It, right. It's just, it's a whole different situation than what you read in the news. Yeah, no doubt. Um, did you, uh, obviously, if, if you were able to engineer that, uh, the new sound system, so how many bases were you then able to, um, you know, go entertain? Yeah, I think at the end of our touring, of, of our band, of Catch Penny, I think it was around 175 shows we played. It's pretty cool, so, man. Yeah, I mean, there were some bases that we would play every time because it was kind of a you'd go to this base to go to the other bases and while you're there you'd play a show so like camp victory in iraq we probably played there six or seven times but I, I, you know i lost track i would say maybe 75 different bases and a lot of these bases they would be there one time we'd go over the next time we'd go over that base would be shut down and they'd be moved somewhere else right. so a lot of joint security stations forward operating bases i mean i'm talking like 50 dudes in a bombed out iraqi mall that they put a bunch of like key walls and stuff around that were there for six months and we go in and play a show and get out and next time that you know the the lines had moved in the war and nobody'd be there anymore right and, and you're accessing those via blackhawk helicopter or how, how are you doing that <clears throat> generally um blackhawk we you know we'd fly in c-17s which are big you know aircraft c-130s um and then we get to a big base and then from there we'd we'd kind of they call it fob hopping. So you'd have two Blackhawks that were with you for the day and you'd, you'd bounce around. We had one trip where we got to fly in Ospreys, which was super cool. Those are the ones that um, take off like helicopters and fly like planes. Um, and we actually, I don't know if this ever changed, but we did convoy once and they told me that we were the only band ever in the history of military entertainment to actually take a convoy to a base. And um, after that experience, I can tell you that I see why, because I, it's probably the scariest day of my life. I thought we were going to die about three times. Let's, uh, so, that sounds good. Let's, let's take a dive there. So what were the circumstances and what happened? Uh, okay, so there was, a, there was an area, um, Sauter City, which if you watch American Sniper, um, that last battle is around Sauter City. And I'm going to tell you what I was told. People might fact check this and be like, well, that's not the case. Uh, you know, please don't quote me on all this stuff. I'm going to give you the closest to the truth I know, but media with so many people, you hear so many different stories. But what I heard was Sauter City was such a dangerous square of land that we had kind of a handshake agreement that the American troops wouldn't go in there if they didn't mess with us because it was just, it wasn't worth it. Um, but we did have a base right across the road on the other side. And those guys, because of their proximity to Sauter City, every, anytime somebody tried to fly in, they get shot at so they wouldn't take bands in there. And they thought, you know, it's actually safer to convoy here, but we have to drive through Baghdad and a few other places. So um, on the drive-in, 
we missed the turn into, so if you, if you imagine you're driving down a road and we have eight MRAPs, which are these massive Hummer-type vehicles, um, there's like eight of them in our convoy, and they had us all spread out, and our band members, in different trucks because they didn't want to lose everybody in one explosion, <laughs> to make a long story short. So we were in the middle ones, there's a guy in front, a guy in back. I was in the front one, and our navigator, I remember, missed the turn, the right turn into the base, and instead of stopping and having the whole convoy back up and kind of being sitting duck, they, they looked at the maps and GPS and said, oh, hey, if we, if we just go left and left and left, we'll make a little square on a block, and we'll be out before they know we're in there, and then we can come back into the base. Well, we turned left into the base, and it's like Blackhawk down in there. There's power lines six feet off the ground, and there's you know, cars piled up in streets. And to make a long story short, we spent way too much time in Sutter City, and people started coming out and mm-hmm. taking pop shots at the trucks, and the rangers came in after us, and we, we did finally get out. So but you literally you know, took fire. A, what's that? I mean, you took fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and you know, <laughs> these are pretty pretty armored vehicles. I I would I would tell people it was it was not unlike a rock hitting your windshield going down the freeway. It's just like you're driving six feet feet behind a dump truck. You know, it's just kink 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 kind of stuff. And it never feels like it's going to rock the whole truck. But there's stuff bouncing off the the armor. Um. We got out, we got to the base, and they said, all right, guys, here's we are going to play, go play the show. And obviously, a few of our guys were, were frazzled. We, we played the show. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we had a good time. But, but the thing is, is we went into Sauter City, we came out, and now they were a little upset with us. So the drive home was pretty interesting. We drove the same path back, and on the way home, the scariest moment for me was, you know, it's dark, it's midnight, everybody has infrared on, and they, they identify like six or seven guys up the road, one of them has a cell phone open, which is widely known as being a detonation device for, you know, if they've got a mine buried or a, an explosive IDs. device. Yeah. Uh, yeah, these guys are all holding AKs. Um, everybody goes red, which, you know, they all, they all put their guns on ready to fire. And our seven-vehicle convoy just slowly rolls past these guys who are standing on our tracks that we had come back on, you know, earlier in the day. And I, I just remember thinking which truck is it going to be, mm. you know, which one are they going to push the button on and then what's going to happen. And, um, nothing, nothing did happen. We had a stare down and we, we got home, but from a psychological standpoint, oh, yeah. that was, that was scarier than having missile shot, having missile shot at our plane. That was scarier than sniper fire. Cause I really thought we were just sitting there waiting. That's, that's a really heavy thought. And I, yeah, I mean, the mental aspects of that is, <clears throat> Yeah, it's it's almost defies words, right? I mean, it's and again, you're you know, you're, PTSD, you're sitting down. Yeah, and and I, you know, there were times where we'd be over there. These trips are usually two to three weeks. Um, I was over there one time for two trips in a row, so I was there a little over a month. And I can tell you, I would come home and drive around, and I would be a little on edge. You know, I would just a guy would pass me really fast on the highway, and I would I would take two looks. Or it felt weird not to have barriers around me. And I, I'm not, you know, I don't have PTSD in any aspect, but I can't imagine the psychological effect on somebody who's actually been in a serious battle where they were shot at and they watched buddies die and they watched cars blow up or have their own car blow up. I mean, it's the respect I have for the people that have been through that is, is unmeasurable because, uh, you know, I got 1% of that taste and I, I can't imagine what it's like to go through that and then try to come home and just like take a cold shower and shake it off. Yeah, it's like yeah. that scene in uh, Her Locker where Jeremy Renner 
He's like in the supermarket and he's just staring at all the boxes of food and he's just having this weird moment. But in yeah. a weird way, he, he, he sort of yearns to go back and, and be in that, that's that headspace and embrace it. Right. I mean, I think, you know, again, I, I always said like, I'm not one of the, one of the cowboys as in like, I'm not one of the soldiers. I was more of like a rodeo clown. Like we were in the arena, but we weren't the cowboys, but you know, I can tell you being in those environments, there's a lot of structure. There's a lot of, everybody's on the same page, right? Like if you're on that base, you understand what's going on. You're prepared for it. You have the right tools and you kind of know everybody's there and um, has, has been checked coming through the gate. So when you get out into a grocery store back in Los Angeles and you're walking around, you know, anybody can walk in there at any time. And there's, there's certain amounts of that that are really unnerving where you know that everybody around you doesn't have the same kind of thought process you do. And I can understand why guys would want to go back to that where it's like, I may not know you, but I know because you're here, I can read the patches on your shoulder and I know X, Y, Z about you. And I, I have a level of trust at that. Not to mention the, the, you know, the brotherhood that happens when you, go through something like that with people. Right. So let's talk a little bit about your, so your, the, the evolution of the band thing happens for you. Um, with the, the BMX tour and the bikes over Baghdad, I think, I think that's worth yeah. uh, definitely diving into a bit. So what, how does that come about and what's it for? And, and, and let's talk about that. Sure. Sure. So I, you know, I, I'd almost say it was a bit selfish because we were tired. Um, I, I really believe when a, when a band or any entertainer goes over to perform, the show is like 20%. The other 80% is hanging out with the troops before and after, visiting them in their offices and seeing what they do, you know, looking at pictures of family, bonding over maybe you have the same football team you like or you're both into riding motocross or, or whatever it is. I think that stuff is, is really um, as meaningful as putting on a show. And our group, I mean, we went dozens and dozens of times, and it takes a lot of energy. I can tell you the last three or four tours, most nights I ended up on a gurney somewhere getting a steroid dripped because I'd lose my voice. It just, it's, it's physically exhausting. And I looked at my group, and I could just tell that kind of um, excitement had worn off. And so it was time to, like, start sending in different people. So we knew the systems. We knew how they worked. We knew what kind of people worked well in these situations. And we were kind of uniquely suited to go out and find <clears throat> other potential entertainers to come over. And that's what we do, by the way, today, is we, we send probably four or five groups over a month. Uh, my brother handles all that, but um, we still provide that service. One of them, the biggest one, is called Bikes Over Baghdad, which you alluded to earlier. Um, I, after college, worked a few seasons at Winter X Games, got to know those people. I just, I love winter sports and always wanted to be close to it, so I was a runner. And I worked my up, way up to kind of doing some TV production um, and made some good contacts. So generally what we did is, is uh, my original idea was to take a big ramp over and do a show in Baghdad with, with some friends I had um, and kind of put on this big exhibition for X Games. But there was a lot of logistics involved there. And while I was trying to sort it out, I met a guy named Nate Wessel, who, if anybody's into BMX or skateboarding, they know Nate is kind of like, the best ramp builder in the world guy. Like he built all the X games ramps. He's been a video game character. He was a pro rider and he's got these huge dreadlocks down to his butt. And, uh, you know, he listens to Slayer all day and, um, is he still doing that no today? Is he what? Is he still doing, is he still in the game as far as building ramps yeah. or is he? 
Yeah, so mostly what he does these days is there's a company called Woodward Camps, and they build these huge skate parks all over the world. And he designs and kind of leads the crews building those around the world. Um, but Nate's been our lead builder on these tours ever since the beginning. And I, I found him one night at a, at a party in Aspen at Winter X Games. And he said, well, I'll go and I'll just build ramps every day. And I was like, what do you, I'm like, you don't understand. Like we fly into a base, we have like eight or 10 hours and we have to put a show on and then we leave. He's like, no problem. I just need one other guy. <laughs> and I thought this guy was like, you know, eight drinks deep. But the more people I talked to, they were like, no, Nate, <laughs> Nate will do that. He will build an entire skate park in like six hours for you. And I said, okay, well, let's give it a shot. And we, we pitched this idea for, I think, two years before the military guys finally trusted me enough to say, we don't get it, but let's go for it. And, I, you know, my belief was just looking at the troops that were over there. It was the complete audience for action sports. They were mostly male. They were late teens, early 20s. I mean, these guys have monster stickers on stuff, and they like, they like guns and four-wheel drives. And, you know, it was a perfect synergy. So <clears throat> about six months before our first tour, my brother and I sent about $25,000 in cash over with another band we were sending over. And one of their guys had to go over and meet this guy that ran a lumber yard in Baghdad at the gate and slide the money through the wire or through the gate and hope that they were going to deliver the wood six months later. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> crazy, right? Yes. It was the only way we could do it because the bases were like, listen, wood is at a premium out here. We're in a desert. You can't use our wood to build ramps. We need it for building our facilities. And I was like, yeah, I get it. Okay. So we found a, a lumber yard in Baghdad and we sent them straight cash. And six months later, we showed up, and lo and behold, that truck showed up with the lumber the day before we got there and delivered it, um, which nine times out of ten probably wouldn't have happened, but it did. Um, Nate and the crew, you know, Nate had recruited about six or seven of his buddies who were great riders, and we're talking, I think we had ten X Games gold medals on that first group. He got the best of the best. We so, went over, and it was like... Do you remember some of the guys... That went? Yeah, I remember all of them, of course. Um, <clears throat> they're all great friends of mine to these days. Uh, Chad Keggy is one of them. Uh, Mike Escamilla. Our announcer, Zach Yankish, whose nickname is Catfish. Um, I mean, he was the X Games announcer. Um, you know, Mike Escamilla, who I just mentioned, his nickname is Rooftop. He, he's a stuntman now. He just did Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, he was in Paul Blart Mall Cop. He was a main character on LA Inc. He had a TV show called Strangers in Danger, you know, so he's a pretty well-known dude. Um, there was just a, a ton of those guys, Brian Kaczynski, Dave Asato, Terry Adams. I could, I could name them all. Yeah. And, um, and, and let's we talk, showed up. Sorry. Just to, yeah. so we, um, we're talking about BMX specifically. Um, and that was primarily due because the skateboarding and or moto had their own set of circumstances that were maybe not the right fit. Is it what? What is the, yeah, the yeah. origin originally, of BMX specifically? Originally, I thought like um, skateboarding and BMX would be cool. Um, but what I didn't really recognize the first time over is, you know, skateboards have little wheels and they need pretty pristine con concrete to do really substantial tricks. They need smooth landings. and On a street um, course, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about pads where they were parking Hummers in the desert for years at a time and it's all cracked up and motocross you know you'd have to fly suspension over you'd have to find bikes in theaters somewhere you'd have to get those on the base we'd have to build big metal kickers and big dirt landings and they were just really it was really hard but 
BMX is uniquely situated. I mean, bicycles can roll over just about anything. Um, they go really high. I mean, guys can do front flips, back flips, you know, whatever you want. And, um, and by the way, Nate was a BMX rider. So, you know, he definitely was like, this is the way you want to go. And I, I have to give him a lot of credit for kind of pulling the right group together the first time. So it ended up being, being BMX. And we came up with the name Bikes Over Baghdad. And, um, you know, I remember being at Camp Victory that first day and building ramps and there was like 150 troops standing around waiting for us to start. We were still building ramps. And I remember the, the generals were showing up and the guys that had signed off on this. And there was a lot of pressure, right? And um, we got it going about 20 minutes late. And I just I remember that first backflip happening and everybody going crazy. And I looked over at the, the, the generals and they kind of were high-fiving each other. And I was like, <laughs> okay, this is cool. We've got something here. And, and lo and behold, it became the most requested tour they've ever had in theater. Um, we get thousands of people every time we show up and it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a tour we still do to this day. Yeah. I was going to ask you, so the status of Bikes Over Baghdad today is currently running. Yeah, we do about two tours a year. Um, you know, with different wars going on and, you know, bases moving around the countries, um, things change, right? So Iraq isn't what it used to be. Those bases in Iraq are not there anymore, but we have these bases that are, are permanent in Kuwait, in Qatar, in, in places I can't actually mention on a podcast that we go to all the time because people are in theater over there and, and they've kind of got a system set up. So we can still go do those. And then when things kind of build up, you know, we went over to Iraq again last year, um, did a few shows up there. We hadn't been there for a few years. So it just kind of ebbs and flows based on where the people are at. Right. So let's, um, do you, Let's share the story. You had an interesting uh, birthday that you spent uh, in one of those places. Can you talk about that, or is that off limits? Or no, I totally can. Um, we, you know, we we usually. It seems like I've. I think I've spent six birthdays, seven birthdays overseas now, which is always one of those moments where it's like, man, it'd be home to just you know have my friends over and have a barbecue. But at the same time, like, how cool to be spending your birthday, um, you know, with the troops giving back and doing something cool. And uh, I can't remember which tour was on, probably the sixth or seventh time over with Bikes Over Baghdad. But we were in um, Baghdad at Camp Victory uh, that, that night. And so they gave me the, the, the main suite, which was actually Saddam's bedroom. Um, <laughs> That's so, nuts. <laughs> it's nuts. Um, so describe so we had a little Saddam's, birthday party. So you, well, describe the setting in that, what is the, I mean, had it been looted? Was it, was it in its kind of pristine state from when he fled? Like what, what state um, do you occupy? So man, I could, I could spend two hours telling you, telling you details about that stuff. What I would generally tell you is Saddam built a lot of cheaply built palaces that were made to look very expensive. We're talking about marble veneers on really bad concrete. So when you see these huge palaces, they look all marble they are like crumbling from the inside out the day after they're built. Um, that said, before the American troops got in there, there was, you know, different people occupied these spaces. Things would get ruined. Things would get moved around. I can tell you the, the U.S. forces always took really good care of stuff, but they, they modified things to suit their needs. So huge conference rooms would have a bunch of cubicles set up, and that would be X offices headquarters, Right. So um, where we were actually that night in is, is called the JVB, which was a hotel 
in Camp Victory that was built for the wedding of one of Saddam's daughters. And this ended up kind of being like the VIP headquarters when people would come in, whether it was a general or entertainers or whoever, they would go to the JVB and you'd get a room there. Um, a lot of the rooms were just, I would say like a suite size, you know, in a normal hotel over here. And they'd put eight bunk beds in them type thing and people would stay in those. Um, but they kept a couple of rooms, you know, set aside for when four stars would come in or, or the president or whoever. And, um, you know, one of them was this room and it's just, it's just a big Middle Eastern looking room. Um, you know, they'd put new beds in and fresh toilet paper and stuff. It, it, it wasn't as glamorous as you probably think. It was more just the fact that yeah. that guy had stayed some nights in there and now I was too. It was right. bizarre. Right. That's one of those things you, you say to, to get a free drink at a bar or something. I mean, it's like, who, who gets <laughs> yeah. to do that? It's an insanely unique experience. Yeah. You, you know, you seem yeah, to have I mean, a lot it, of uniquely, ex, you know, experiences like that where, you know, I'll be, I'll be with you somewhere talking and I'm just peeling back the onion that is you. And, you know, it's like, oh, I didn't know you spent the night in Saddam Hussein's bedroom. That's crazy. <laughs> I can tell you, let me tell you one of my other most favorite stories of Camp Victory. Cause we did a lot of tours over there. Um, again, uh, somebody may fact check this and be like, well, that's not what this guy said, but my understanding, if you remember back when we first invaded Iraq, uh, President Bush said, Saddam, Saddam is saying you have 48 hours um, to show us your weapons of mass destruction or we're going to invade. And then we invaded in like, I don't know, 15 hours or something. We kind of jumped the gun on it. And people have asked, well, why didn't we give them the full 48 hours? Um, Camp Victory is really interesting. There are lakes everywhere. And these lakes used to have fresh water pumped in nonstop. So, oh man, I'm really going back here, but Saddam had a deal, the, the food for oil embargo stuff, where basically water was supposed to be piped into Baghdad so people could raise crops and they could start kind of building an economy. And what Saddam did is diverted seven out of the eight like channels of water coming in just into Camp Victory to have fresh lakes everywhere. He was, uh, he was into swimming, I guess. He loved swimming and he actually had avoided a suicide attempt one time because he was able to swim somewhere and get away from it, as I understand it. So if you drive around Camp Victory, there's all these huge palaces with lakes everywhere. Now, by the time I was over there, these lakes are gnarly, right? The water's cut off. It smells bad. There's bugs and, and whatever. But I guess back in the day, it was like a hunting ground. They had animals running around. It's freshwater craziness. Apparently, when we go back and, and, and we decided to invade earlier than the 48 hours, we had special forces guys that had swam up the channels and were in the lake and had identified that like all the key players in the government were in this one building. Um, it was the, the bath party headquarters basically. And so they said, Hey, one missile strike right now. And we don't have to chase these guys all over the country for the next five years. We can take, take care of it. So they decided to call in a strike. Um, I've been in that room three or four times when the first bomb hit Apparently, Saddam caught wind, and instead of telling everyone, he just snuck out the back door, and they missed him. But they got a lot of the guys. And uh, the weirdest fact here is all of these guys were in the theater room when they went to clear it out after the bombing. And in the DVD player in the theater room was Pretty Woman. What in the heck is going <laughs> on there? <laughs> Dude, I, I, I don't know. All I can tell you is I've heard this story enough times, and I believe it's true, that like, Everybody's in the theater room, and maybe they weren't watching at the time. Who knows? 
But when they went to clear the theater out and they pulled the DVD player out, Pretty Woman was, was in the DVD player and all those dudes were in the room. So th- another fun fact for you. Um, uh, actually, I got one more. And then I'll make this really quick. Do it. In the same complex, um, Saddam hated American culture except the Flintstones. And Julia there Roberts. Is, what's that? And Julia Roberts. Yeah, and sure. Well, who doesn't like Julia Roberts? I mean, come on. But uh, he had a life-size replica of Bedrock built in the camp, in, in um, the Bath Party headquarters for when his grandkids came to visit and his staff 24-7. So if you want to go online and look it up, it's called Flintstone Village. There's an actual replica of the Flintstones' homes built in this complex that was supposed to house. It's like basically like our Washington, D.C. That's so completely I'll just bizarre. That. Yeah. Super crazy. Yeah. And by the way, if anyone wanted to check out um, the Bikes Over Baghdad uh, to check out the videos and such, how would they do that? Sure. There's a lot of videos just on YouTube if you type in Bikes Over Baghdad. We actually have a documentary we did several years ago that's on iTunes. You can, you can watch that as well. But... Um, I think it's a pretty good look. You can see all these rooms we're talking about. We go to all these places. Um, and I will tell you the BMX guys are a colorful bunch of dudes and highly entertaining. So uh, I recommend checking it out. It'll, it'll give you a different perspective into what it was actually like for somebody to be serving over in Iraq and, and kind of what we experienced firsthand. Right. Well, thanks for sharing all that. So, I mean, yeah. it's, it's even hard to fathom. Like when you say like I've been there 38 times like that, like you said, I mean, that just, that's an insane amount of energy and, and I'm, you know, I'm sure you saw some heavy things and at the end, you know, your, your heart's in the right place. And, you know, I certainly commend those efforts, but it's, it's even, it's just hard to think about how much of your life uh, was actually spent there and those experiences that you're going to have forever. Yeah. It's, it's looking back, it feels like a different lifetime and I'm, you know, if anybody out there in the military is listening, like, thank you for what you do. And I, I, I'm humbled to be able to have experienced that and, and hopefully help some people, but it's looking back on it and thinking through some of those nights, it's, it feels like I watched a movie. Like it, it almost feels like a different lifetime. Yeah, I bet. Which is, um, which is interesting as, as we now maybe catch everyone up to speed on what you're doing. I mean, I'm wondering if, well, it's got to be no mystery that some of the things that you were exposed to obviously are, are, are deep, deeply rooted. And, you know, maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of your story here, but your, your business, Uncharted Supply Co., um, is, is about human preservation and survival. And, um, I mean, do you think that there was some deep-seated, uh, you know, lessons or... You know, or are you just are you just like a doomsday prepper that thought, man, this this product doesn't exist and I want to bring it? Like, so maybe maybe we could talk a little bit about what's happening with your business. Yeah, no, I think there's a couple things that play into this. I mean, I mentioned earlier I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, and as young as I can remember, if it if there was a significant snowfall, um, I'd get up in the morning, my dad would put me in a tractor with a plow, and I'd plow the neighborhood out. Um, you know, if, if some if a neighbor needed help, we were there. It was just, that was the culture I grew up in, right? And then we start doing that, the military stuff. And it's, it's one of these things where, like, the more you help people, the better it feels for you. It's almost a little bit, like, self-serving because it's such a high to be able to help people and impact them in such a way. I remember Colonel Rainey, we did some, we've done a lot of content over the years, videos, and 
I remember one of the interviews he did, and this is a guy that kind of took care of all the programs. He said, you know, I think we're all going to go home and have a hard time feeling fulfilled with whatever jobs we take next after having these experiences. And that has really stuck with me because it didn't, that didn't resonate with me at the time, but after the kind of going over to Iraq so much and really being in the thick of things ended, there was this emptiness because you got so used to like literally being a game changer every day. And it was hard to go back to just the idea of working in an office somewhere or, you know, sitting and looking at a computer all day. It just doesn't tangibly feel the same. So <clears throat> I think all of these things have kind of played into a mindset that I have. And listen, I, for everybody out there, I, I will never be the guy that says I'm like a survival expert. I am not uh, Bear Grylls. You know, I've, I've had some amazing experiences, whether it's backcountry skiing or elk hunting or being in Iraq or growing up on the farm. I'm a well-rounded human being, but um, I have other experts I rely on. But what I do have, I think, inherently is this desire to, like, make things better and, and to try to find solutions for things. And I think that's what really led me into what I'm doing now. So let's, for those that, that are not familiar with Uncharted Supply Co., let's, let's talk about the product that you're offering, how it came to be, how it was developed, and the the criteria for which the items were selected. Yeah, so Uncharted Supply Co., um, the idea here, and I'll tell you, you know, I, I met you, Ryan, when I moved out to L.A. I had some other jobs out there. I was doing freelance marketing work, and then I was a vice president of marketing for a company, and met you. We got to be friends. But I can tell you, going from living in the Midwest, to living in Newport Beach or Los Angeles is there's a tangible difference there. I had never experienced traffic like that. I had never been around people that had spent their whole lives in like an urban urban environment. And these things kind of like probably hit me in a way that was different than they would hit somebody who's kind of always been around that. And the real kind of watershed moment for me is I was stuck in traffic one day late for a meeting and it was kind of misting out. It was like a fog and my coworker that was with me, I was like, is there a wreck ahead? Can you look on Google, see what's up? And she said, well, it's just the rain. And I said, this isn't rain. My windshield wipers aren't even on yet. She's like, yeah, but nobody out here knows how to do anything except 75 and sunny. And I kind of brushed that off, but I had enough of those experiences over my four or five years living out there that I, I realized, wow, people not only haven't experienced anything else, but kind of perfect existence, but they they don't have the tools. And they, they just don't even think about these things. And as I went down a wormhole, I realized, let's say I'm prepared and I know how to do stuff. If I'm, in a, if I'm one guy and a million people, I'm still screwed. The only way we can really kind of affect change is if tens or hundreds of thousands of people actually take the time to get the right equipment and the know-how and can kind of be part of the solution and not part of the problem. So this kind of led me down a path where I decided to start this company. Our first product is a 72-hour survival kit. You can call it a bug-out bag. You can call it a go-bag. Um, and what, what is the reason? Was, what, sorry. What, and the, the reason behind the 72 hours, is there a significance there? There is. It, it's, it's a crazy statistic. 95% um, of all emergency situations, and I'm talking 9-11 down to going in a ditch, down to somebody getting lost somewhere, 95% of the time, those situations are resolved in 72 hours. And resolution means first responders show up, they find you, they come to your supplies and take care of you. 
But what happens in those first 72 hours when you're on your own is truly life or death. So for me, being a marketing guy and really getting down to like, what's the essence of this? We just called the pack the 72. Because the idea is this is everything you need to get you three days on your own. And, and then 95% of the time, statistically, help's going to show up. So you don't need to buy a million dollar bunker. You don't need to buy, you know, a year's worth of food and rations. Um, you just need these specific tools and you're going to be in a good position. And did you do this also, you know, take this endeavor on, obviously you have your, your personal reasons. Did you feel like, you know, up to your offering, there wasn't really anything in the marketplace. So basically you're sort of scratching your own itch or like, and, and how were, how were the products selected? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I started going out looking for things and obviously the first place you go is like REI or a military surplus store, right? So you start going to these places, you look online and I mean, Ryan, I bought a dozen of these kits. I remember one kit had a blow dart gun with three darts in it. It's like, <laughs> What awesome. situation are you in where this is going to help, you know? I mean, you got neighbors creeping through your front yard. You got three shots. I, I, I don't get yeah. it. So, you know, there's other ones that had rabbit snares. And I'm like, what are the odds that, like, some, some retired elderly person that is in a situation is going to take the time to go out and set up a rabbit snare because they're that hungry? I mean, no. Right. No, they need a life straw. I mean. Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's funny where people's perceptions are at, and especially considering the world we're living in and, and the year 2017 was, from natural disasters to terrorism to political craziness to whatever, um, nobody really thought about the space. And I just kept talking to people, and everybody I talked to would say, oh, I, I totally need something like that because we're going to get the big one out here, and I'm totally not prepared, but I just don't know where to go. And at the same time, I was, and the reason I was asking people this stuff was because I was like, well, what do you have? Like, I, I need to get a kit and I can't find anything. And I just, I came to the conclusion that there wasn't anything, or at least if there was, nobody was finding it. And I could, I could kind of, as you said, scratch that itch. Well, and like you said, you know, yeah, you can probably go to like a Home yeah. Depot or one of those places and you're going to get the sort of cheap version that comes from overseas that has virtually no actual thought to the items in it and or the creator was more margin focused, which means that in essence, which is really kind of contradictory to the whole point, the products inside of it were probably so price point driven and so margin tight that they're of subpar quality. And we're talking about something that you're going to buy to save your life. None of that makes logical sense. Totally. I mean, listen, nobody likes to buy insurance, right? So I think that was the logic up till now. It's like, well, nobody likes to buy it. So let's make it as cheap as possible and kind of check a box for somebody and they can kind of, you know, in their gut, they're probably like, is this really going to work? But they, they've got their kit and they can move on. And I just thought, you know what, I'm going to blow this whole thing up and I'm going to start pulling apart these kits and showing people that what they have is a complete false sense of security. I mean, nothing in those kits I would trust my life with. I mean, the backpacks, the zippers break the third time you use them. Um, there's no organization. There's no rhyme or reason. Things don't work well together. Batteries corroded, food's old. Um, it just didn't make any sense. And, you know, to get people to spend money, you got to like, get them to want to spend money. So one of the first things I did was decided, like, this has to be kind of, for lack of a better word, cool. Like, I wanted to make this like a hero product. So if you were with somebody that had it in their car, they're like, cool, this guy's thinking ahead. He's, you know, he's going to help me through something. And that was, that was kind of the logic behind this. So 
Yeah, I mean, our, our price point, we, this kit right now is $350, um, which is a lot more than most kits. And we get a lot of trolls on the internet saying, I can build it for 50 bucks. And I, I tell them every time, if you can come back and show me where you built it for 50 bucks, I'll send you a free one. Right. And every single person would come back and said, you're totally right. I was at 450 bucks and I wasn't even done yet. I'm going to buy your kit. So, right. Um, right. I mean, you're, you're in that, in that space where you're, you're the early pioneer and you're putting out a premium product and you are going to get that resistance, but it's like one of those things too. And it's, you know, how do you get that message across? Like, okay, well, how much is your life worth? Like, yeah. you know, you're going to go for the 1099 Home Depot version. You're going to spend the 350, but you just increase your odds. Totally. And you know, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like, we're not even, we're not just marketing our product. It's like, we're trying to define um, almost a new product space in the market. You know, I had an old mentor that always said, market space, not marketplace. And I always, that always stuck in my head. And that was one of the reasons that I decided to go down this because nobody else is doing it right. There's a huge opening where I don't have to compete with North Face or Patagonia or Oakley or whoever. But at the same time, there's other challenges because now you have to educate people why. And they're not, they're not already looking for this. You have to like get in front of them a couple times and say, listen, stuff's happening and this, you, know, you need to be prepared. And oh, by the way, here's our product. Now let us tell you about that. Right. And then you used the, so some of the guys you had working on this were survival experts and these were Everest climbers, right? This wasn't, you know. Totally. Totally. I am, um, like I said earlier, I, I never say I'm the expert, but I have friends that are. I've got special forces friends. I've got doctor friends. Um, you know, my friend Eric Meyer has been up K2 and Everest a bunch. Brian Warren is on the team. He's been up Everest a handful of times. He's the head mountain guide in Jackson Hole. And I, I independently met with all of these people and I said, you know, I don't want to know what you have for you. I want to know what you would give your family if you couldn't get to them in time and something happened. Like, what are the things you would build out and give them and the instructions you would give them? What are the most important first 10 steps in a situation that you'd want them to know? And that was kind of what was the essence of creating this product, um, which has really resonated well. Right. So now, and now you're, you know, you've, you, you did the crowdfunding thing, right, initially to source? We did. We ended up being the highest or highest funded survival product in crowdfunding history, which I don't know how, many, how much competition there was in that space, but that's what they told us. Um, you know what, Ryan, I mean, you know, you and I met before I ever got this thing together, and I said, hey, I'm thinking about this idea from the area of expertise. Like, what do you think? It was, it was always a big gamble because I didn't, I didn't know if people would buy in or not, but... You know, I, with your yeah. with your uh, support and other people's, I decided to go for it. And you know, I thought we'd maybe sell thirty thousand on Indiegogo, which is what our first goal was. And we ended up we ended up doing a half a million dollars in the first two months. No, it's it speaks to the it speaks to the thoughtful product behind it. And again, how you you know the the materials you chose, like you said, you wanted to make it elevated, and with a certain amount of cool factor. I mean, why does it why does it have to be, you know? a red bag with, you know, with poor design. Every feature should mean something. Aesthetics are important. And you certainly executed that. And, uh, yeah, it's certainly a credit to your vision. So, but now you're faced with, you know, the challenges of a business as, as anyone who's got a small business. So you being this marketing minded fellow, um, 
you sign up for Shark Tank and you are accepted. Yeah, so um, there was probably about eight months in between our Indiegogo campaign and, and when we decided to do Shark Tank. I, I've watched every episode every season, and while I was building this company, that was always on in the background. And while it is a TV show, those guys ask really good questions over and over and over. You know, what differentiates you? Can you protect this? Is it patentable? Um, what's your price point? What are your margins? And it's like, in a weird way, I built this company based around a lot of those questions, right? And I knew when we were ready to apply versus when we weren't, because I knew they were going to ask about sales. I knew they were going to ask about margins. So things we had to just give time to kind of get to the right, the right levels before I felt like we were, we were ready to go on. And then we got to point, I was like, you know what, let's, let's go for this. So, um, one of my partners, Mike Escamilla, who is one of the bikes over Baghdad guys, um, has an agent, and she got us a phone call with the casting director, uh, Mindy. And we got a call with Mindy. We told her about her product, and she said, guys, sounds great. Send in a submission video, and I'll, I promise I'll take a look at it. So, well, we didn't have to go out and stand in line somewhere uh, I was just at the convention say, center. Right. I wondered, I wondered how many people you just skipped over in line. <laughs> a lot. Well, uh, yeah, that, that was nice. But I will tell you... Um, the submission video, I mean, we were still thrown in. I mean, 70,000 people applied last season is what they told me. And I'm sure maybe we got thrown into the last 20,000, you know? So it wasn't like they were like, great, we'll have you on the air. I mean, there was probably seven or eight rounds we had to go through to get onto the show. And it was a lot of work. Um, I will tell you, we applied for the first time in December and we filmed in June and our episode aired October 1st. Yeah, right. These things are starting instantaneous. So, um, so take me through your, you know, you're, you're on the stage, obviously, you know, you're, you're, you're well-versed with being in front of a crowd, public speaking, all those types of things. So there probably wasn't a high anxiety from, a, oh, I'm on TV. However, I mean, I could tell you, I would feel if I'm standing in front of those sharks again, and you're, you're, you're correct to point out, they do ask great pointed questions. Um, were you, how were the nerves there? It was almost like you, you, you feel like you're going to be exposed on national TV, or at least that would be my fear over anything else. They're going to ask me <laughs> yeah. something I don't know the answer to. Well, driving into LA, I drove, said to bring a bunch of supplies out. So I had a, I had a nice 11 hour drive in and that whole time driving in, I thought, am I elevating my company or am I shooting myself mm, in the foot? Because yeah. to your point, like sometimes they get onto some obscure thing yeah. and they make you look stupid. Yeah. And I, I just, Ryan, I prepped for months for this. We did. You know, we went over every question you could think of. We looked up every Shark Tank question most asked online, you know, that we could find. And <clears throat> there wasn't a fact I couldn't recite back. It was literally like practicing for a spelling bee or something. So I felt going in that, like, I was pretty well set up. I felt really comfortable about what they would ask what our weak points were, how to talk around them. Um, you know, we get to LA, we've got like three or four days. We're going to film sometime in there. And you know, the nerves, I don't know if this is intentional or not, but they said, okay, you're going to film Sunday. And then Friday night, they're like, we're actually going to have you go tomorrow. Mm, yeah. And it's like, Oh man. Well, even though I was ready, it's like that 24 hours, suddenly your heart's just pounding. Right. And then you get to the set and you get your trailer and they're like, okay, you'll probably be on around 11. And then it's one and then it's three. And then it's, well, we don't know if we're going to get to you today, and if we don't, we'll probably fly you home and have you come back in November. And then it's like, oh, nope, you're going to go. And then you're in the green room, and then it's like, well, not sure if you're going to go yet. And then it's like, go. 
and you're standing behind those doors. Do you? So do you even not... before you walk in there, it's like this like mind game where you just have to kind of, kind of chill out, remember your lines, and just like let it roll. Yeah. Uh, now, do you get to meet the sharks in advance? Is it a warm fuzzy, or is it like you just go out and you're in front of the firing line? Yeah, it's it's the firing line. Yeah. Um, you you get to go in and kind of set up ahead of time a little bit. So we we went into the room and um, the sharks were over in a corner talking, and some people are doing interviews. You don't talk to them; they don't look at you. You don't look at them. Um, so you actually got to see the room for five seconds. Went back, doors closed, and then you walk in, and all the cameras are rolling. And by the way, that's a that's a big room, and there's probably 50 people standing around in that room watching everything, cameras moving around. And um, one of the hardest things is you walk in, you walk up to Mark, you stand there, and you wait for two minutes, and you don't say anything. And they just sit there and look at you, and you just stand there and smile back at them. That's a long um, two minutes, man. It's a long, It's like a half hour, man. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, the cameras are jitting, they're like going around on these on these booms, and they're getting all these shots. So anytime you watch the episode, and there's like this super pregnant pause where the guy's just kind of standing there like during the headlights odds are it came from those two minutes where you're just supposed to stand there and not say anything you know they want some b-roll to cut to so for me that was the weirdest part was walking in and being like man i've seen this a thousand times and all you want to do is be like hey guys and you just can't say anything yeah and who were your sharks <clears throat> um we had robert Herzebeck, mark cuban borganeer barbara corin and Rohan Oza, who is a guest shark this year, he's um, most famous for starting um, vitamin water and and some of those brands. Awesome. And so, yeah. you know, I don't I don't want to you know spoiler alert how it went, but you know, for those who want to check it out, maybe do so. But you did uh, you got a deal? We did. Yeah, we we did a deal um, with Robert Herzevec. Um, yeah, we aired October first, so I can talk about what happened. We're going to re-air December third, um, Sunday night again. So if you've missed it, you can either watch it online or watch it December 3rd. Um, we, we did the deal with Robert. Uh, we were asking for $100,000 for 5% of the company. We actually thought our company was worth more than that. But again, if you think about what Shark Tank is, it's a huge marketing opportunity to get in front of a lot of people and present your product. And we didn't want to have half of our discussion be about valuation where they're telling you why you're not worth something and just having that negative psychology going on. So we want to make a deal so good that the sharks were fighting over it, which would make us look like more of a positive product. So while we thought we were worth more, we went in at that. We gave our pitch. We talked for five minutes and Robert immediately offered us double what we were asking for. And he said, let's go. Well, that game plan and that actually, worked. What's that? I said that game plan worked out. <laughs> well, it didn't. It didn't. Um, the hard part is Robert's like, let's go. I want to know right now. And in my head, I'm like, they do not have enough to make an episode of us. If I say yes right now, we're not going to get on air. So I had to beg Robert to give me time to talk to the rest of the people because in the back of my mind, I'm like, we need more conversation. We need people talking about this. And if I take this right now, we're never going to get on air. So um, we almost played it too well. We ended up having some pretty good conversation. If you watch the episode, it looks like Robert comes in at the end with the deal and then gives us a shot clock. He had actually been waiting about 45 minutes. We were in there an hour and, um, I was able to hold him off that long and kind of have this continued conversation with the rest of the sharks, which was amazingly positive. Um, and then finally agreed to do the deal with Robert. I mean, Cuban went out and uh, probably my biggest disappointment in what I watched was that they didn't show the conversation with Mark because Mark went through all of our numbers with us for probably 10 minutes. And he literally said, I like to invest in companies that have a gaping hole that need my help. And you guys are solid. He's like, you don't need me. 
He's like, I, I'm not going to invest because I don't know how I make this go faster than you already are, which is a massive compliment. And I would have argued that with him. I'd love to have Mark Cuban on the team. Sure. But um, I wish he would have shown that. You know, so there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make it to the final edit. Yeah. You know what I always wonder too, after you see everyone, you know, the guys that get the deals and then like they do that quick little, you know, where are they now segment? You know, yeah, I yeah. wonder like, A, you know, how much of that is sort of fluff and more marketing? Um, and, and B, like of all the companies that are picked, like do most of them crash and burn out, oh, you know, on that? Or is this sort of the, the, the one point, you know, the 1% that actually sneaks through and, and, and now we're going to highlight them. So what has been your experience uh, sort of coming through the other side of this, or is it too early to have seen the shark's investment take effect? And is it, is it real? Is it significant? Yeah, here's, here's the way I would frame this up. And by the way, there's a great website called Sharkalytics. If you go on there, these guys, I don't know who they are, but they've tracked every deal, what it was for, where they are now, what the sales are. So if you really are a fan, you can get into the details and into the weeds over there. Um, for us, we looked at this as like, to me, it's like a three-day ad campaign that we ran that would have cost us a couple million dollars, right? So the show airs, um, we get tons of traffic. I mean, hundreds of thousands of visits to our website, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales. And that lasts about three to four days. There's this kind of bump, right, where it spikes and then it drops off. And what I would say is the companies that have been able to leverage this and build good brands are the ones that had the plan for day five and onward. Um, the people that just expected Shark Tank to kind of carry them for a year, uh, they probably had another thing coming. You know, For a lot of them, the website traffic dries up. A new episode comes out the next week, and they had a nice shot in the arm for a bit, and it went away. Right. They get a big now what? Yeah. <clears throat> right. Right. I mean, for us, um, I can tell you Shark Tank is a lot like speed dating, and there's a whole due diligence process that happens after before you get married. In the end, we did not get to the deal with, with Robert Herzog, and we didn't actually take the money, so we're, we're not working with them. Um, but we had another investor that came on right like after we had filmed Shark Tank, but before it had aired, we had another person, another group we were talking to, a very, very big group, which um, the announcements will be coming soon. But uh, I mean, these guys own, own um, uh, massive amounts of Twitter stock and, and Headspace and Pandora and Barstool Sports. So pretty big guys that are really, really amazing investors that came on board. And the first thing they said to us is like, we want 90% of our investment to go to ad buying right after Shark Tank. And yeah. I mean, if you'd have told me that we were going to be spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on Facebook and Google ads before I took the first penny back as salary, I would have told you you were crazy. But looking back at this, it's been amazing. Um, it, we were able to leverage that Shark Tank bump and keep it rolling um, through today. I mean, we're still, we're, we're selling, we're selling more in, um, in a day many times than we were in a month before Shark Tank and before the ad every day. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Is there is there plans to is this going to be the one and only hero product or are there is there plans to supplement the product categories and, and where do you go from here? Or do yeah, you not um, want to defocus and just like look man, this is this is what we do. You know, this is we're 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 about keeping you alive. This is what we do. Or how do you or how do you speak to that? 
one of the beauty, the most beautiful things about Shark Tank was we got 5,000 emails of people saying, well, what about this? What about that? I'm this person. Like, I have a family of four. How many should I buy? Or is one kid enough? And it really gave us a great sample size of the general market that didn't know about us before and how they were reacting to the product. And that's kind of guiding what we're building moving forward. Um, some things I think people just need better education on. You know, some people are like, well, I have a family of six and I want one kit. And my response to that is, well, your kid's going to be 80 pounds. And how many times is your whole family together when something randomly occurs? It's better for you to have a couple, you know? So some things I can educate about, but other things, um, they've really helped us kind of understand what people are reacting to and, and how we can improve what we're currently doing. So we have four or five products we're going to build out this year. Um, we've got a, a really cool backpack that's going to be kind of an everyday backpack that has some super unique features to it that I think are really um, really necessary in the day and age we live in now. We're going to build a family pack. We've, we've got some new gloves and jackets and um, just some really cool stuff we're coming out with that are more than just meets the eye. They've got a lot of stuff built in. So if you've got that jacket on and something happens, it's going to help you more than any other jacket will get through situation. Oh, looking forward to that. Very much looking forward to that. And, and yeah. so how could, um, if, if I was interested in, in learning more about your company or, or you personally, um, how can people get in touch with you or what's the best way for them to find you via Instagram or a website? Sure. Well, our website's unchartedsupplyco.com. It's uncharted, not unchartered. Um, we get that wrong a bit, although both of them will lead you there. Um, Instagram, at unchartedsupplyco. My name, at Christian Schaff. Um, I think most of our information, you know, we're, we're a direct-to-consumer company right now. Everything we do is online, and we're trying to kind of try to build a lifestyle brand here that people can follow along with and interact with and, and be part of. So there's a lot of activity. There's a lot of fun. We're creating a lot of great content this winter with, you know, um, the Utah Avalanche Center and first responder guys and, and you know, hunting guides. And we're, we're kind of going out and working with people um, to, just, to just provide really cool, entertaining, but really educational content moving forward that kind of augments what we're doing from the product side. Super fun, man. Listen, thank yeah. you for, uh, for the great storytelling and, uh, and recounting <laughs> some of your, your history with, with us today. Um, listen, man, I am, uh, get the spare bedroom ready. I'm, I'm going to come up. I'm going to come up at first snowfall here. We're going to hit it. Yeah, right, man. I just, I just got to say thank you to you too. You've, you know, we met at a mud run, like, I don't know, five or six years ago and, uh, you're a busy guy too. I appreciate the support you've always given me and, uh, the friendship and, you know, for, for, You've, you've been through a lot of this before. I mean, you've built companies and that advice is valuable. So I, I appreciate and, and, and am indebted to you for all of that. So I don't have a couch. I actually have a bed for you to come out. And, uh, <laughs> all good, uh, man. We'll, we'll have some fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, well, thanks again for, for spending time with us today. And um, we will see you soon, my friend. Cool, Ryan. Talk to you soon. Later. Thanks, everybody. Bye.